Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for CEO Exclusive, brought to you by Anona Enterprises. Good morning and welcome to CEO Exclusive, where we get emerging trends from CEOs and their most trusted advisors. I'm your host, Soyini Koch. Unlimited time off. Sounds great, doesn't it? It's a new trend amongst some technology companies and our guests today. Andrew Ryan, CEO, and Jim Katz, CTO of Member Suite, are going to share their insights from implementing this new policy at their company. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Hey, thanks. Hi. Good to be here. So, Member Suite is a, a software for membership associations, mm-hmm. and you can find out more about them at CEOExclusiveRadio.com. To get us started, Andrew, how does unlimited PTO work? Sure. Well, it's not unlimited. Um, so we, my uh, my HR manager is very quick to correct me. It's it's, it's simply something that is flexible, right? So we don't create buckets of time where you have a certain amount of time and when you run out, you are no longer able to take paid time off you. It's simply a, um, a situation where you request it and if your manager approves it, we don't really track how much you have or enforce limits. How many employees do you have working for Member Suite? Just under 60. Great. So I, after you mentioned this, and I had heard about it a little bit in the news, mm-hmm. um, LinkedIn and Netflix and some other technology companies have implemented this policy. It seems to get mixed reviews. Sure. And when we were talking about it, you, you sounded really excited about it. Mm-hmm. But some of the articles I've read said, well, you know, what happens is that you end up just burning people out because nobody, everybody, it kind of becomes a game where people compete to see who can take the least time off mm-hmm. to prove to their managers how hard they're working and et cetera. Why do you like it and why do you think it works? Well, first I would say that these things, there is no one size fits all when you talk about, you know, how to manage people and how to create culture. It depends on the kind of people you have and the kind of business you have. I wouldn't necessarily recommend, recommend a limited time off for, say, a business where people had to clock in and clock out, you know, and so it wouldn't be the right for that culture. I, I was actually just explaining this to my mother, who was an ER nurse in the Bronx for 30 years, and she couldn't couldn't understand it. She was like, well, why doesn't everybody just take time off all the time? <laughs> um, and the reality is you need the right people, and that's that's the first thing. You need to hire the right people. But, you know, I've always thought and I, I feel very strongly about this, that when your employees sign on to your company, the, there's a social contract, and it goes two ways. I mean, they agree to give you their best efforts and to uh, do the best to ensure a great outcome for their work, but you agree to give them an environment where they can thrive and set them up to success, and the trust goes both ways. And so what you're saying with unlimited time off is, or flex time off, is that we trust you to make the best determination about when you should take days to essentially recover and recuperate, right? We trust that you're not going to abuse that, and we trust that you're going to do the right thing for yourself. But there's the counter is that you're right. What actually does happen is a sort of an unintended consequence that is fairly surprising to most people is that people end up not taking time off because there's a stigma sort of associated with it and they don't necessarily want to be seen as abusing the system. So you then have to put processes and incentives in place to make sure people are taking the amount of time off. One of my friends, you see, of a company in Boston, and she pays people $500 to take two weeks blocks off every year, right? You just have to make sure people do it because you're right, people do get burnt out and that's not healthy either. Mm-hmm. And so, Jim, how have you used the, quote, unlimited time off policy, both as an employee and a- as an executive at the company? Well, I, I tend to be one of those people that has to be told to take some time off. Um, uh, <laughs> Andrew's nodding. So I probably have used probably less with the the uh, unlimited policy than than previously, but I think that's more just a um, a factor of 
being excited about some of the projects that we have going on right now. Um, so last summer, I, I took a couple of weeks off. I took two weeks off. My employees, a lot of them are being in technology, uh, require uh, doing work at times when less people are on the system. So this means a lot of uh, evening work, e- uh, weekend work. Um, and so I really enjoy this policy because it allows me to then go back to employees and, and tell them, you know, you worked late last night, let's take, take a day off tomorrow. Um, you worked last weekend, let's take some time off this week. And they don't have to feel like they're sacrificing some, you know, allotment of PTO that they have for, to make up for hours that they work the evening. They feel like it all come, comes out in the wash. So mm-hmm. I feel like they're, they're more mo- motivated, um, and take more ownership of these projects, um, with that as a counterbalance. And so if you look at the dollars and cents of it, you said that in, in what you found, Andrew, is that people are actually taking less time off. How mm. much less time off do they take when you when you say you can have all the time off you want? A lot less, because if you're hiring the right people, you're hiring people who are excited about what you're doing, who are hungry and want to grow in their career, and when they are given the right challenge, um, are excited to tackle it. And those kind of people almost do the work that they're doing uh, for fun. And so what happens is you I have those kind of nodding. people. Yeah, yeah they, they want to, they just want to, they want to win. They want to, they, they're, they're jazzed about the outcome and they don't want to let their team members down. So you find, you know, weeks and months will go by and they haven't taken any time off. And so you do certain things. I mean, we there are times where we have, you know, we'll all have, you know, we'll take a day and we'll go and we'll do, um, not Whirly Ball, but where were we at Slingshot? Yeah. Um, we'll do company events. Um, we'll, we'll have, you know, breakout dodgeball like Top games golf. or Top Golf. Or we um we have uh, Xboxes downstairs. We have like five Xboxes. This and we is have the, ben- the benefit of being a technology company. Oh <laughs> yeah. my god! Give us your resumes. We are we are always hiring. But like yeah, so <laughs> anytime during the day, you should go downstairs. And you know what? You fire up the Oculus and you're in virtual reality, or you can get a you know a Halo game going or a Madden game going, and that's that's just the way we we basically let you sort of break up your work and sort of clear your head so people don't get burned out. But it's something we really do have to struggle with because people will work themselves out of, you know, sort of happiness. And that's not good either. So you mentioned a lot of things that I imagine listener, listening listeners are very interested in. So how do you find these people who are driven and excited and willing to work themselves into the ground for you and be happy doing it? Like, how do you find them? Yeah, that's a great question. And it is the question yeah. of, of every CEO, right? Yeah, I don't even want to give away too many of my tricks in my, <laughs> my trade, but I think there's a couple of things you do. First of all, I think you recognize the intrinsic value of diversity. I think a lot of cynics uh, sort of poo-poo diversity is sort of just, uh, you know, having just having um, sort of diversity for the sake of it uh, of itself. And I think that's not the case. I mean, everybody, every human being has their own biases, has their own history, their own upbringing, their own prisms at which they see reality and facts that come through them. And just having different people from different backgrounds, different genders, looking at a problem and taking a TikTok, looking at a tough problem, this, and it just gives you, uh, it ensures a better outcome. So there's just an intrinsic value of having different kinds of people people from different backgrounds, different ages, looking at a problem. So that's the first thing you recognize. So then you ask yourself, well, how do you get that? Like, how do you get that kind of diversity? How do you get the goodness? How do you get the kind of people that will work hard? And I think the the secret has been for us, um, it's probably going to be surprising. And the secret for us is being really, really rigorous in our hiring process and having some objective hiring criteria that like help us figure out who's good and who's not. 
The reason why this is such a big deal is because as human beings, we all believe, especially as we get older in our careers, that we've got like, we've got the magic touch. Like, I can tell you're going to be great. Like, I can, I can, <laughs> I can just, just look tell. at you on the street. Yeah, I had a feeling about them. And we believe we've just got this gut feeling where we can pick good people and we can't. We don't, right? What happens is we over-remember the times we got right. And we under-remember the times we thought somebody was great and they were a train wreck, right? What, the reality is that's just a function of our own biases. And what we typically do as human beings is we, without understanding that we're doing it, we 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 mistake homogeneity for equality. Oh, this person, I like them. I get along with them. I think they're going to be good. They remind me of me. And so what you're in is a company of people who are just like you, <laughs> right? And what you miss out on are the people who may not be like you at all, but still may be great. Because the way we hire, we we put a lot of emphasis on objective assessments. You cannot get a job in our company under a director level without taking some kind of exam assessment, which you are measured against your peers and people working their company. We are able to hire people that if we simply relied on gut feel alone, or do they look like us, or do they sound like us, or do they seem like us, we would never have hired. Our best employee, one of our best employees, we hired out of a kitchen, right? Like he was flipping burgers, and he became one of our best product product managers. Why? He did a really good job on the assessment. We were blown away, so we hired him. We never would have hired him if we relied on gut and sort of feel alone. And so you start to build a collection of these people who have something to prove, right? And all are really focused and really driven, and then they bring other people like that on. And then people who aren't like that get spit out by the culture, and you look up and you have a company like what we have. Go ahead. Yeah, I'd say we we also spent a lot of time um, really fine tuning those assessments. Um, you know, I, I even took an assessment when I first met Andrew ten years ago. A lot of it is is open ended. Um, th- these aren't like textbook uh, questions that you can look up and find a you know an A, B, or C answer. Um, we encourage uh, we ri- write the questions explicitly. These aren't brain teasers. I know a lot of companies use the, the brain teaser type questions in technology, uh, but these are open ended things that we hope people will go do research on. And you really can tell a difference about how passionate somebody is when they take an open ended question and they very thoroughly research it down to the fine details and write you a paragraph versus somebody who writes you a quick sentence on what they googled. Um, that comes across pretty pretty easily. Mm. And how are you going about developing these assessments? How, how did you? So what we do is we look at each position and we figure out who is excelled in that position and we try and figure out why. So if we've got a product support position and we're like, okay, well, you know, let's take somebody who has excelled in that position, right? So let's take Johnny, right? Why is Johnny so good? Well, Johnny is great with people. Well, how do we test being great with people, right? So we may have a question like, you know, you just missed a deadline and a customer is very upset, you know, craft an email that explains why and apologizes. Johnny just figures things out. Without a lot of without a lot of handholding. Well, how do we test for that? Oh, I know. Let's pick a random you know a random problem we found on the internet and say, hey, this random software gives me this error. Why? And see if he has the wherewithal to go and figure it out and dive and look at the forums and get the answer. So you start with what makes somebody good, and then you figure out how to test for those things, and that's your assessment. And then you iterate. You just you just keep on adding things as things change or as you feel like things don't work, and and that's it. And then Jim, how do you? figure out whether or not somebody is a good match for your culture? Well, we actually, uh, we spent a lot of time on the assessments. We we also spent a lot of time kind of taking that, that approach, which we did interdepartmentally, and then applying the same kind of rigor to the company as a whole. So we, we spent, um, I don't know, several weeks uh, going through defining our, our company's values. Um, all the executive team got together and took these different uh, tidbits that we had gotten from uh, doing this type of analysis in our own departments. And Passion obviously came across. That's one of our our, uh, our big ones. That again, as we're going through the interview process, those are the values that we're we're testing for. That we're we're hoping to see candidates express. Mm. And so, how 
do you systematically go about instilling those values into your organization? So, you know, a lot of people talk about these great values. These are great. These are actually great questions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we, I mean, I it's try. something I we mean, struggle with. Um, yeah. We actually sit and we talk about it. I mean, these are really, these are really great questions. So it depends on the answers. It depends on the value. But, but the single answer is deliberately. And that's the one thing I've learned. Culture is not something that just happens by accident. It's mm-hmm. not just the product of just hiring the right people. You have to make culture happen, and it starts from the top. So, for instance, one of our values is transparency. Well, how do we instill that into the That comes up a lot on the show, actually. Yeah. And it's something everybody, people give lip service to values. Oh, we value our customers. Oh, we value our employees. They can say that, but like, how do you make that reality? Well, so for transparency, we do certain things. Like we have an all hands meeting every quarter and we present to the company all of the financial results and where we are, and where we're going. We also have an anonymous suggestion box that you can send, you, electronic suggestion box you can send something to. And I made a promise to the company that anything you put in there, I will read out and I will answer. You can ask me any question, no matter how hard, no matter how rough it might be on the management team, because we as a management team are accountable to you. Um, so that kind of thing makes people feel like, okay, we know what's going on. So even if times are rough, even if we got a, you know, we had a release that was really bad and we had performance issues and customers are mad at us, um, we, we kind of have a good faith in the management team that they're telling it, they're giving it to us straight and we can get through this together and matters. Customer is another one of our, um, of, our, of our values. So how do we essentially think about being a customer experience-centric company? Well, deliberately. So we deliberately bring our customers to our all-hand meeting and we have them talk to our employees about a set of things that they do. So our last all-hands meeting, we brought four customers in on a panel and they talked about what it's like to plan a conference, which is actually a fairly complicated thing. And our, our employees had no idea that this is what our customers did. And so they really enjoyed meeting them. So that kind of thing is, you know, something we deliberately, th- we sit around and think about like, oh, you know what? We're going to have engineers talk to customers before they fix bugs. So they understand who they're fixing bugs for. That kind of thing is something we have to like sit around and think about how do we instill it. So it's it's difficult. But if you if you essentially think about, if you really are deliberate about what you do and what you want the outcome to be, you can generate the culture you want. Culture comes up a lot on the show. It does. And one of the things that I think about is how do you measure the value of culture? Do you give any, have you given any thought to that? Because it just feels like it's, you know, woo-woo and it's nice. And and yet every CEO on the show pretty much talks about how they have this culture and these values and they're so important. Do you have even an intuitive sense what, the actual value is of your culture. Do what? Go ahead, Jim. Yeah. It is hard to to quantify. Uh, you, know, we try to bring those values down into everything from um, uh, the hiring process down into reviews. But yeah, that I mean that that is a constant struggle is to to quantify quantify those values. We sit we as a executive team sit around and um, uh, self assess and and talk about you know where those values um, are apparent and where they're lacking we work to try to you know drive those values down where they are lacking but I'm quantifying it that's a difficult thing yeah it's difficult to quantify but it's it's very I mean I you almost don't need to because it's so important it doesn't even need to be quantified you just ultimately your culture so as a company, you you create shareholder value by essentially establishing a position of leadership in the marketplace. And you do that by offering a superior product or service to your customers. The product and service that you offer is the sum of the people that offer them, right? So you, you can't get away from that. You you could be the greatest CEO in the world, but you can't like code every single you know line or do every single engagement. The culture is like the operating system. It's like the framework by which people decide what's important and what's not important, by which they decide what values are important to other people, qualities are important to other people, and what aren't, and how they make decisions day to day. And it's the reason, the culture is the reason why 
the employee who is four levels away from the CEO who just got there four weeks ago can do the right thing, even in the absence of, you know, really heavy sort of and an manual handholding. And so um, it's just so important because you can't sort of, you can't generate a good product or service for your customers without the right culture. If you have a culture of of not caring about customers, that that will show up. Your customers will tell you, but we don't think you care about us, right? And they'll tell other people, right? So there's just it's it's immeasurably valuable. And I think it's one of the lessons you learn as a CEO. It's something that if you are sort of a tech CEO and you kind of think about things as, you know, in, oh, we're going to build this great service and it's going to take off, you don't realize the importance of it until you start to get larger and you start to see what happens when you don't have the right culture. You start to see the wrong people strive and, you know, grow in your organization. You start to see how that manifests itself to the customer. Mm, great. For everyone listening, we're talking with CEO Andrew Ryan and CTO Jim Katz of Member Suite, which is a software for membership associations. So I'm going to turn the, the conversation. Well, it's kind of turned already to talking about people and leadership, et cetera, et cetera. So I would love for you to think about and share with our listeners your best advice for building that great culture. You talked about your process of talking with the management about the, the values. And you say you deliberately try to instill those values into the organization What's the best advice that you have of making sure that the culture is the culture that you that you want and it's intentional? Let me just I'm gonna try and synthesize this. I mean, I think the the there's a couple of pieces of advice I would give. First of all, remember the culture is deliberate. So don't fall into the trap of thinking that culture happens simply because you hire some of the right people or because you you feel that way, right? You may love the customer, but that doesn't mean that that will trickle down to your organization. So I think you have to figure out for yourself what you value. And this really does start from the CEO. I, I am of the camp that this is not something to be democratized. I mean, certainly you want <laughs> feedback from your executive team and that matters. But this is sort of what being a leader is, right? Like at some point you have to set the direction and there's no better sort of bully pulpit to do that from than your role as a CEO. And there's no more important thing than here are the values of the organization because it dictates everything. It dictates how you, who you hire. It dictates how your processes run. It dictates how you think about selling, how you communicate value to your customer, and ultimately whether or not you'll be successful. So you got to really think hard about what those values should be. And some of it really is personal. Like one of our values is growth and this idea that it's important for us to create an environment where, um, our, our employees can grow professionally. So as we hire, we ask questions like, tell us what you don't like about your current position and tell us where you want to be. And we try and we try and kind of create a path for you that kind of we, where we think you can be where you want to be in a year or two if you come work here. And that's something we deliberately do in our hiring process. And that's just because I feel passionately about it. So so it's okay for it to be, a, you know, just a function of your personal passion. That's fine. But it's got to be something that, you know, you feel strongly about that you're committed to and you're committed to putting resources behind and that you can hold the company accountable to when people fall down. Mm -hmm. My advice, when you're small and you're starting up, you really don't have a lot of time to sit around and, and debate what your, your values of the organization are. You're just worried about, you know, getting, getting the job done, getting the product launched, getting customers on board and those sorts of things. Making payroll. Making payroll. So by the time you get around to, <laughs> to really putting that rigor and really being deliberate about your culture, um, your culture has already kind of established itself and it's established itself through the type of people you've hired. So my advice would be um, to get buy-in from the team you have because you probably at that point have uh, several employees, maybe dozens, 
Um, and I can tell you uh, the process we went through um, as an executive team, we sat down and talked about the biggest successes in the company and tried to attribute um, specific traits or attributes to how we were behaving at that time. And then we went through um, some mm. difficult times in the company and we talked about what was lacking at those times. And then we had our employees go through the same exercise mm. and we didn't dictate down to them what the company's values are. Um, we did our exercise, so we knew what our sheet was, and then we took what the employees said, and we found where there were where there were matches. So when we came to the company and with a set of values, it resonated with them. It wasn't something they said. You know, you always worry about an employee if you dictate values, saying, "Yeah, that doesn't that they they're out of touch." Um, in this case, they could say, "Yeah, that is that is day to day teamwork is what makes my job uh, fun, makes my job go well." Mm. So before when we were having our conversation to prepare for the show, I promised you no current events. And then now I want to ask you about a current event. So if you don't want to answer, I understand. (laughs) I hope I'm aware of the current event. (laughs) I'm wondering if you had a reaction since we're talking so much about culture, right? There was this thing with the, um, God, I can't remember his name, but the CEO of Uber, right? All that mishigasha happened where, you know, there was basically a revolt. Mm -hmm. His email that, announced his decision to um, come off of the president's uh, advisory board was that, said that I, you know, I, I talk, took a look at it and I realized that this was inconsistent with our company values. I'm wondering if you had a reaction to it and what did you think? Um, either of you, Jim or, or Andrew. Do you know about this, the whole, the taxi cab yeah, thing? I did hear JFK. about this, yeah. yeah. So um, give him a moment, listeners. I, I told I, him I wasn't going to ask about current events, and then now I'm asking So I feel one. like, you know, I, look, I'm hesitant. You know, I'm always hesitant to judge a CEO because you just don't, especially if you're, you're running something as huge as Uber. It may be, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know what the competing sort of pressures on him were in this, you know, organization. Uber is a company that is beset in a lot of ways by regulatory realities, and they rely on sort of the the municipalities and the states that they operate in um, to be able to essentially operate the organization and be profitable there. And so they ha- they more so than say me have to be much more careful and te- tread this line with how they how they interact with different governments. Um, and and for that reason, I, it's fairly easy to be a little disgusted by the whole situation um, as a knee-jerk reaction, but I think it's probably wiser to take a step back and think about, well, as CEO, he has a responsibility not just to his employees and culture, but to his shareholders, right, and to the people that invested in him, and he can't simply just, you know, let his actions be a function of his political leanings, even if, you know, I'm sure as most tech CEOs in Silicon Valley, he probably does not support a lot of the policies that we're seeing come out of, of the modern White House, and so I guess I would withhold judgment and just say, you know, I don't really know what was going on in his world and what made him feel like he had to do that. And I don't know what, you know, what board member or what political reality, what regulatory reality made him think that that was the best thing for his company. And so I I just don't want to just judge him, I guess. Okay, that's that's fair. Non-judgmental. That's that's great. That's great. And so, as you mentioned, shareholders and and raising money, one of the things that that Member Suite has been very successful in is in raising 19 Point six million dollars uh, uh, since 2010. Oh man, is it that much? Yeah, <laughs> well, I feel like um, on vacation. <laughs> a lot of money. We got the PTO. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we can do it if you want to. <laughs> I think she wants to come. <laughs> As you mentioned, the obligation to shareholders and and how does that affect this desire to have a culture and and the the tension that you mentioned sometimes between the profit motive. And and the culture that you're trying to build. My that's a great question. My suspicion is early on, not that much. Um, 
you know, you, you obviously, at the end of the day, we all work for the shareholders, and the CEO's primary job is to increase shareholder value. I mean, that's, that's what you do. I think, you know, we're 60 people. There's not a lot of times in which those, at least in my experience and from my peer CEOs and what I've heard, there's not a lot of times at which those two objectives collide mm-hmm. and are mutually exclusive. Um, usually, when employee morale is high and attrition is low because that costs a lot of money when you have to bring on employees and train them and productivity is high, that is in the best interest of the shareholders, right? So usually those two, those two kind of objectives are aligned so you can optimize for both. Um, now, Uber is a huge company, right? Like as I said before, with regulatory realities that really affect its ability to sort of drive shareholder value and growth. And so I could see where those could become out of alignment where it's like, hey, look, you know, if we... Perhaps, and you see this with Google too, like if we maybe cozy up to this Chinese regime, you know, we get to operate in China and open like two billion more in revenue, but <laughs> it's sort of communism. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's not really a company value. So, I mean, I, I, and so that's why, again, I say it's so easy to just sit back from the comfort of our, of, our, of our rocking chairs and throw rocks. And I think it's far more difficult to try and understand the line that they have to walk. And that's why I'm not really quick to judge, but I think, um, at our stage, you really shouldn't have that. You shouldn't have that big of a of a of a gap between shareholder, you know, increasing shareholder value and serving your shareholders and serving your employees. They should be. They should actually bring you all to the same place. Mm. And how do you go? You know, just walk us through a little bit of how that process works of you managing your shareholders and keeping them happy. Well, so I think it's a it's a few things. Making so, money, I know, is is the most important part, which you seem to have a lock on that. Yeah, I mean, well, we, so so you, you interact mostly, as CEO, you interact with your board. Um, your board is represented by the shareholders. But you also have, a lot of times, if you're a tech CEO, you also have smaller shareholders who aren't on the board, or can, you know, put 50, 20, you know, 100K early on. And it's really easy, and I have made this mistake myself, to sort of forget about them because there's so much going on in your day and there's so much you're dealing and battling with. And there's so, you know, you, your payroll is now four times what they put in, you know what I mean? And so it's sort of like, it's really easy to kind of not communicate. And that's a mistake, right? Because ultimately those people backed you in the beginning, they backed you early on. And so what I do is I have a regular cadence of communication. I get myself into a rhythm of every quarter giving certain information out, every month giving a quick touch point in where I talk about key, key things that have happened what keeps me up at night, key wins, what I'm really excited about, what's working. Um, and I communicate that in a really systematic way. And people like that. I mean, they don't necessarily need to have a two-hour conversation with you every quarter or every month. They just want to kind of know what's going on um, and managing that. And then ultimately, you set your goals for what you want the company to do. You get your buy-in from your board and your shareholders, and you track and execute to it. And that's how you manage shareholder. In my area of expertise in the technology side, um, we find that engineers are motivated by the opportunity to make things run more efficiently, to make things cheaper, to make things better, to make things faster. Um, and so we, we definitely uh, foster that, um, that uh, opportunity for our engineers to go take something that's working and working okay and make it better, make it more efficient. And by that, by that effort to make the, the uh, unit economics for the business um, look better. Great. So, uh, what other things that you think are happening at at Member Suite that are new and exciting um, would you like to share with with people who are listening to the show? Sure. I mean, I think the first and most important thing is the rate at which we're growing. I mean, we're we're adding. You know, every month we're probably onboarding four or five people, um, which we've never seen. You know, that kind of growth before. And we are we have I don't know, man, like a dozen open racks. I mean, we're really rigorous about hiring the right people, so we don't really get to hire as quickly as we want to hire if we could. Um, but we're we're always interviewing, we're always bringing on new people, and that's that's super exciting. You know, 
if you got what do you think about that well um you know we're we're doing some interesting things um uh on the on the product side um we have we have uh, a lot of new uh, r&d going on where we have um some cool stuff we're, we're looking to announce this year um, uh, that we're doing around around data and, and doing some analytics and um, some cool stuff we're doing on on the product side uh, to enhance our user experience. Uh, we're really excited for that. Great. Well, thank you so much for a wonderful show, um, Andrew and Jim, and uh, sharing your insights on offering unlimited or flexible time off and building an amazing culture. And for everyone listening, um, thank you so much. You've been listening to CEO Exclusive. On today's show, we had CEO and CTO of Member Suite, Andrew Ryan and Jim Katz. Member, uh, Member Suite is a software that helps membership associations. On Thursday, you can check out our blog where we're going to summarize the key takeaways from today's show. And to find that blog you can and find out more about our guests and listen to past shows, you can go to CEOExclusiveRadio.com. I'm Soyini Koch. And until next time, have a prosperous, productive, and very profitable week. This show is brought to you by Anona Enterprises, where strategy is your access to money and performance. Learn more at AnonaEnterprises.com.